Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show and on next week's show is Tom Russo, the managing member of Gardner, Russo & Gardner. Tom and I sat down back in episode 16 to discuss his background and investment strategy in what was then one of the most popular episodes on the show. He oversees $13 billion in a global value strategy focused on family-operated public companies. Our second conversation is a two-part episode for this week and next. In the first, we talk solely about his holding in Berkshire Hathaway, a stock he first bought 38 years ago. The conversation covers Tom's initial purchase of Berkshire, company meetings, 
reaffirming his thesis and searching for disconfirming information, the genius of Warren Buffett, research on MyTech, cross-fertilization of Berkshire's CEOs, the subdivisions of insurance, public market investments, and regulated businesses, valuation, compensation, Berkshire after Warren, and Tom's sell discipline on the stock. We close with a teaser for next week's episode as Tom reveals the name of the first significant stock he's bought for his clients in eight years. Please enjoy the first half of my second conversation with Tom Russo. Tom, it's so wonderful to see you. Thank you. It's great to be back. We've talked about doing this, and we're just going to focus and dive in on this little company in Omaha. We're going to start there. When did you first buy your first share of Berkshire Hathaway? Well, that would have been just after I first spent time with Warren, and it was in 1981 or 82, and it was at Stanford Business School, and Professor Jack McDonald, who was the value investing professor, the Roger Murray or the Bruce Greenwald, the believer in fundamental analysis at Stanford, who had a longstanding friendship with Warren. I think his involvement with Warren was maybe forged two decades before I was in the class that Warren spoke at. I remember afterwards saying to the professor McDonald, he's right that Berkshire is is remarkable. Warren's the smartest person I've ever heard speak and all of that. And I said, but isn't it too bad that it's gone from $300 a share to $900 a share? Because and these are the A all, shares. The, these the, are the, the only shares. A shares at the time. After all, because the bird has flown. And he said, Tom, you're not nearly so talented as I thought. You know, this is not, <laughs> there's a lot left in this one. And, and so that was the first time I experienced the thought process behind Berkshire. And nobody was talking about Berkshire as a place where you should spend time at that point. Yeah. And so to get a sense of the time lag, what was the Tom Russo research process in 1981? Yeah. In between when you first met this guy, Warren Buffett, and when you bought that first share? Well, it was the same time. There's not a lot of distance. And it was the simplicity with which Warren approached answering the questions from the audience and also leading the audience. So his first point was that the government only gives you one advantage as an investor, and that's the non-taxation of unrealized gains. And so you better do something about that. And what that means is that he'd taken this massive step from old Ben Graham value investing to the start of a new approach to investing because Ben Graham was all about 50 cent dollar bills. But every time you found one, you were driven to close that gap quickly to sustain an IRR. And the longer you waited, the patient sort of investor didn't make sense up against the traditional Graham and Dodd network and capital type investments. And, and so Berkshire was at the dawn of moving into an investment that required that you find business at the capacity to reinvest. And then the question he said is that anybody who reinvests on your behalf is your agent, and it's really hard to succeed in business if your agent is self-interested rather than has your interest at heart. And so that was a really important insight, is that you need something that can grow, and the only way you'll get the benefit of that growth is if the investments are made by an owner-minded management yeah. team. So we, there are a couple messages that resonate and still resonate about that conversation in 1981. And how big do you think your data set was of companies you had looked at 
when you were a upstart graduate student? Well, it's funny you mention that because a friend of mine who sadly since passed away named Pat Ryan and I grew up together in a small town in Wisconsin called Janesville. And lo and behold, years after he went to Stanford Business School, as did I, we were sitting at some point and he said about Berkshire and about Warren and all the rest, he said, Tom, you know, I remember when you were in eighth grade, you were talking about investing in International Dairy Queen. Now, how ironic was that? And I did. And and in the town I lived in, there was a public company called the Parker Pen Company. Well, it ends up with all of the features of that what drive my investments today. It was a global luxury brand. It was a ceremonially given. So it had massive price inelastic demand and it was global. It was family controlled. And so the, the ability to invest for the very longest term And in their case, they sort of let the ball drop. And of course, that's the risk with moving from Warren's early comments about making sure you have an interested agent managing the reinvestment process and representing a family who has the capacity to endure for multi-generations. So they're properly incented to be long-term-minded. And then to have a family that sort of goes to sleep at the switch. And that's what sadly happened to Parker Penn. I was involved with that business even before Stanford Business School. But I didn't have a frame of reference. It was just sort of the family that had the most money in town had a business for the public sector. I might as well just invest in that. So it was a good gut call. Yes. And then. the other one, the Dairy Queen was truly a gut call because I sort of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I sort of liked the product and the Parker Pen was fine, but the gut call was really the Dairy Queen investment. And so I do want to dive into each of the business lines and really get your current take yeah. on the business. But in between 1981 and today, when you, I'm sure you haven't sold those shares and you've probably accumulated a few more. Yeah. What do you do in your ongoing monitoring process for the company? I get up very early one morning. Now it's two days a year. And I race around <laughs> the central lobby of the convention center. And I talk to every one of the lines of business uh, management that I can find. And I'm really looking for something that doesn't corroborate with everything we already know about Berkshire. I'm looking for the thing that that suggests that there's a counter argument towards what is otherwise a pretty straight, unobstructed march towards Profitland partnering with Warren. And so I'm looking for reasons why companies that come into the Berkshire fold do better than historically and why it is and is that continuing to be such a fertile ground. Yeah, some would argue that these are more crowded shareholder meetings than others. Oh, gosh. So how do you engage in that conversation when there's so many other people around? Yeah, but people are, are just not asking the questions. There is a spectator element. It's like people go to have a sighting of Warren Buffett. And that's why the vast majority of people are on that floor. They're not talking to the head of my tech industrial construction equipment business in search for how the business has grown over the subsequent time since the last time we met. I see the same people each year and we have a chance to hear how the business is going. Well, it's a very vital business. And to understand how it works, I was together the management of MyTech at one point, And from the far corner, there's this enormous mass of people coming towards us. And it was the very front of it was one man, just one man. And it was Bill Gates board member, an extraordinaire at Berkshire. And he came straight up to the head of my tech and he said, how are you doing? Fine. Did the guys call you from Microsoft? I mean, he was trying to work on an issue relating to the product 
that they had. And he said, yep, we talked to them. That's just terrific. And they shook hands and said, keep up the good work, as the board member might say. And off he went with the 500 people following him around. Well, those 500 people didn't in any way intrude on the conversation that I had before Bill showed up, nor did it diminish the insights shared by watching how he interacted with the head of that business. And so I spent a lot of time there. That's the best. Now, you also have a reaffirmation each year at the annual meeting about the core principles and high order valued principles. And whether it's Charlie Munger saying something like, you know, you must remember that the things that made you great in the past may no longer be the things that allow you to stay great today or much less become more great later. And at Berkshire, we're in the business of becoming more great later. And we have to recognize that just because the way they did business one way doesn't mean that it's going to be the same way going forward. Now, that, that was Charlie's observation around the appearance of IBM in the portfolio. And sure enough, IBM was a complete dud. However, it allowed for them to begin the journey to technology And sometime later, instead of a $6 billion position in the dud, IBM, they have a $40 billion position in Apple. And they were willing to make that journey because of the core insight that Charlie shared at the meeting. And the sort of eureka moments at the high order insights are really frequent when you attend the meeting. Let's just dive in a little on, say, my tech. Do you research each individual business to the best you can over the years. Just take my tech as an example. How did you first start learning more than just what you could read in the annual letter about my tech? Well, they had a booth. And at that booth, there was a CEO at the time who, who ran it as a public company. And we talked. And so when was the first time you spoke to him, you think? Gosh, it would have probably been, I would suspect, 19... 95 to 1999. And we talked and he said, you know, this is a very interesting company. And we were starved before because they were owned by a Scottish company that was milking them. And it came onto the market. And there was an auction and a a firm that I knew from Ireland in the construction equipment business claims to have outbid Berkshire for the business. But for one reason or another, the deal went to Berkshire And so over the years, I followed the Irish company, and then I followed Berkshire. And so I had information coming from a a variety of parts as to what the business offered. What the business offered was a software package that allowed construction yards to create the structures that that are required for certified building activity. And they automated it. And they had all the information stored as to how many feet between each outlet you have to have when you when you frame up a house, you know, what the proper depths are for the frames and all the rest. And that information was resident in a software that allowed them to empower local building construction sites in a way that just wasn't available before. And so it grew virally. And it probably has grown 25 times the business that existed when they bought it. They had an interesting phantom stock arrangement. They created a phantom share called a share of MyTech within the company. And Warren referred at one point in an annual report that had gone up a thousand times. And these are very interesting questions. How do you align the workers with Berkshire? They did that through a phantom stock. I, I hadn't seen that anywhere else. And so from that first meeting, would you then go visit MyTech on site? Can't. I mean, we really don't have that kind of... Opportunity. Other than I often visit 
Dairy Queen on site <laughs> just to make sure <laughs> that, the, keep coming back to that the dip chocolate, whatever it is, is still as good as it is. The Dilly Bar, I guess they're called. You really can't go to Ajit and say, let's have an afternoon chat about how we're doing in reinsurance business because there are a lot of factors. Everything is relatively channeled through the proper conduit. In the MyTech case, when you talked about this phantom stock plan, yeah. are you only aware of that because it came up in an annual report? In that case, I'm sure I heard about it from the annual report. It would not have come from them. But there are there are very interesting conversations. I mean, 12 years ago, maybe, maybe more, closer to 20, I met with Kevin Clayton, who spoke at one of Bob Miles' conferences. Bob Miles is the man, Berkshire CEO and an author and a symposium organizer for Berkshire. Kevin spoke, and I met with him afterwards. And I said, what's life like? This is the question I so often ask is, how is it different within Berkshire? And he said, well, the beauty is no more quarterly earnings. I just shut down that whole operation, which added no value whatsoever to anybody involved. And then he said, a relief from, of having to reinvest the free cash flow that pops up from our business beyond what's organically required in our business because we actually give that money to Berkshire and we don't have to fret on that anymore. And then he said an absolute waterfall of capital is available if we need to make an investment beyond the cash flow that we've 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 got. So that was interesting. And then he said, and you get with it the world's smartest consultant. Warren. (laughs) And any time, Kevin said at the time, decades ago, that he has a problem and he's confronting an investment decision, Warren offers to send down at the time the indefensible and to pick him up and fly him back to Omaha. They'd have lunch and Warren would ask him three questions. And at the end of the second question, Kevin always knew exactly what he was supposed to do. The third question almost could go unasked because the first two were so right. Now, that's the absolute genius of Warren is that it's uh, Clayton Holmes that he's asking the questions about. But if it was John Mansville, or if it was my deck, or if it was Burlington Northern, the questions would be different. But probably at the third question, they would all feel, as did Kevin, that they were onto something. And that's, you know, as Warren always says, the goal is to know what's important and knowable. And by channeling the conversation to what's most important and what's most knowable, I think the strikeout ratio at Berkshire is way lower than any other company because they're well-considered investments by Warren's guidance. How much of that is inextricably linked to Warren himself? Well, what happens as a result of what we just described is that the ecosystem is very appealing to companies that are exactly the kind of companies that Berkshire would most want to own. Ironically, there's a symbiotic relationship between the companies that want to care for the cultures that they've established and respect the legacy that they built and Berkshire's desire to buy those types of companies. And so long as all of the infrastructure that I described within the Berkshire model as they operate remains, I think Berkshire will have the ability to draw people from similar businesses down the road over time. The moment that they break from that process of offering protection from quarterly conference calls, offering capital, offering advice, and letting the management who, who owned the business continue to run them as they still did, if that continues, it'll go unbroken. Warren was asked that question, exactly that question at the last annual meeting. How much is it you and how will your successors handle it? He said, it's not about me. It's about the fact that the sellers of such cherished businesses have nowhere else to go. And he said, it's not anything about me. It's about what we offer them 
And there's nowhere else that offers that. So the structure of what he built certainly will sustain itself yeah. as long as the board protects that for some period of time. The subtlety of your talking about yeah. with this reaction of the CEO saying, you know, Warren is the guy who asks those three questions. Does that matter? And if so, how far down the line does it matter? Well, I continue to ask the same question each time. And when I get to the smaller companies, call it Feckheimers, for example, they might say, yeah, we don't get the indefensible. I mean, the jet doesn't come and pick us up and take us back to talk about because, you know, Warren's now busier and- Indefensible, oh, that's his- That was the old name for the airplane that started Warren down the path towards net jets ultimately. But they don't get that sort of flight back to Omaha lunch with Warren because the issues that they confront aren't as large and Warren's schedules become far more busy as they relate to me. He's just not waiting for us. What they do say is that there are loose associations amongst the smaller companies where they gather or they share thoughts collectively in a crowdsourced manner to come up with those three questions. And they get assistance from each other in that score. And and it's interesting at the same time, in a whole host of companies, Warren has one of his valued lieutenants, Tracy, as a board chair of so many of the companies. And so the combination of this collection of companies that consult one another in lieu of the fact that Warren probably wouldn't have time, as they do consult, then ultimately Tracy is aware. And then the, the awareness that she has helps alert Warren if there's something untoward happening uh, amongst the smaller companies. And it's a nice structure. And it's something that I think can absorb growth. Two or three years ago, we bumped into each other at Omaha yeah. and happened to see Ted Wessler yeah. and we're having a conversation with him and you were floating by him. Hey, like, are you getting your CEOs together? And, and it was sort of mixed. Yeah. It was some of the CEOs do want this best practices type yeah. sharing and others just kind of want to do their own thing. And by the way, this is just my derivation. I mean, this is the sort of ruminations that come from the meetings where there's a sense that there is that opportunity to seek a second opinion. I remember walking away from that thinking, how in the world did you come to understand that Tracy Britt is orchestrating the interaction of CEOs who yeah. want to talk to each other? That may or may not be the reality. What I surmised was that there's a ability to speak amongst themselves and that in, I think, maybe four or five portfolio companies, Tracy is the board chair or on the board. And so that is just a process if they collect their thoughts amongst a half a dozen companies and one of them has a company with Tracy on the board, that there's some flow of information that is valuable. But it's really derived. I've never had it confirmed, but it would make sense because those clusters can respond in a way that the Berkshire won't be able to over time as the hub, which has long been Warren himself, is in the future shared by two heads, Ajit and Abel. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see if and how. Now, one of the things that Kevin suggested in the earliest meetings was just how independent Warren was about about each business standing on their own. That was a really big early deal, and it evolved. You may remember Warren owned Johns Manville, Acme Brick, Shaw Carpets, MyTech. At so many levels, he owned businesses that could have been tied to Clayton 
So Clayton, you should always buy your bricks from Acme. Well, Warren insisted over the years that companies had to compete for the business, that the internal crutch of a natural demand to Clayton Homes for the Acme bricks threatened over time to lead to less than market tested outcomes because each of them knew that they had to deal with each other. So that actually was an important observation. In that context, American Express is part of the portfolio. And Borsheim's had, and Nebraska Furniture Mart had a MasterCard and Visa. No American Express, because obviously each of them said, the premium is just not worth it for us. And Warren never insisted that they migrate over. And that was the world up until maybe two years ago when I ran into Kevin. And we were chatting briefly and what's going on. I said, one of the interesting things that they had done was they had realized that they actually, as an enterprise, had extraordinary needs that are diversely met for health insurance. And they never really leveraged the presence of, of so many covered lives. And he said that they've started to, and they've started to pool together and then buy collectively across the divisions in a way that was historically from what Warren asked of each division was to stay independent and make sure that you're offering the best. And in this case, they pooled together for the first time. And does this ultimately tie in with what they've hired Atul Gawande to do well, across JP Morgan and Amazon? I mean, that's a fascinating development. And it probably does because they started to think about their own needs more broadly. And they pulled those together. And I think Berkshire now has almost 400,000 employees, Amazon more, JP Morgan more. And together now, this is a most extraordinary development. On the insurance side, is that a similar dynamic? There are a few pockets. There's the Geico pocket. But it does feel like there are a lot of lines where it just makes sense to create scale rather than to compete across two different businesses yes. that they acquire. Well, insurance is harder to penetrate because Ajit does not have a booth. And Geico does. But, you know, Geico's booth is all about the gecko and it's the solicitation. You can do better if you sign up for Geico right now. And so it's the ease of access to capture new insured at the Coliseum that you come away with. But God, that's a fairly automated process and, and a very attractive pricing combination. So you can see real time how they're capturing business and then how they promote it. But you don't really get a sense of what they're thinking about. Uh, and I guess you see them extend, extend into motorcycles and to pontoon boats and to power boats and all that. So you do see them grow. But you don't really get a sense of what's going on inside Geico as you can inside my deck. Yeah. So if you think about the underwriting capabilities yeah. of Ajit yeah. and Geico and the various teams yeah. there, there's a degree to which Warren says they're underwriting at a premium. The float is free. Yeah. That's wonderful. And I'm thinking of in the last decade, you've had a few hedge fund managers. Yeah. Say third point and green light, create reinsurance businesses, sure. but struggle to have great underwriting operators yes. underneath them. When you're assessing, yeah. will that strength and underwriting continue? We've got Warren's word at the annual meeting, and you've got a few numbers. Yeah. Is there any way of getting comfort that yeah. that continues across other insurance operations? It's so wrapped up in the talent at the top. I mean, it's so rare to have a person of Ajit's appetite and capacity to run a division with a partner as smart as Warren on risk management. So Ajit sources the market all day, every single day. He's 
pulling in quotes and he's learning from the market by virtue of what people are pitching to him to participate in, what the tone of the market is. And then on specific risks, he, he consults with Warren, the best risk adjuster in the world. And together, you have this ability not to swing for endless pitches, endless, countless pitches. They don't swing. But when they do swing, it's the big fat one. And so it's so interesting how the concept of margin of safety crosses over from the investment side with Warren having that conversation at the end of each day with uh, Ajit about uh, is there enough margin of safety? And the way you get there is just that you get such high premium at some time because no one else has the capacity. And they only get there because they don't squander their capacity. Now, I mean, on the margin, there are a whole host of areas that are developing within Berkshire's insurance where they're putting together more traditional-looking operations that uh, in large measure have spun off from AIG. And and those businesses begin to, as is Genry, look more like a day-to-day, year-to-year rollover type business, which is different than the don't swing until the big fat pitch comes across the plate. And, you know, we haven't lived long enough through this cycle to know how, how that new story will turn out. Usually when you're in the market and you're renewing on a regular basis, you end up being more exposed to the general broad market forces that they have enjoyed not succumbing to for most of the life of Berkshire because they never have to swing. And if you look at the history of the blend of the one-off big risk versus the sort of day-to-day we're in the market rolling over, how does the percentage of the underwriting break down today and how's that evolved over time? Well, I don't have those numbers. I suspect it was 100%, really. That was what's been so remarkable is it's been able to be as high as 100% and and she could walk away from business any time. I remember after Katrina, where they survived with barely a nick relative to the kind of crushing consequences that even Jack Byrne um, suffered with White White Mountains. And then they had something called Olympus Re. And it was blown up. They aggregated too much risk in in the general area around New Orleans, and they basically went under. And Berkshire survived. And then they wrote the next year and at premiums that were massively higher and they wrote lucky. And so they, they kept all the premium because it was an event free year. And then they didn't write the next year. And I asked, I see why not? And at the time it was, there's some reason it's some kind of sense that we can't, you can't write back to back hurricanes. It's just bad luck. And it wasn't even though the premium in the second year had gone way up, they didn't write it. And it was just, they had the right to back away, and they did. They insured Lucky in some ways for the first year after Katrina, and then they pulled back the next year. Why do you think they did? You know, I wondered about that, and it was, it, I mean, there's no correlation unless you get a sense that there's a buildup and it ultimately release. I don't really know the answer. Did it frustrate you that it's in this situation? You well, it just seemed like, really you know, you end. could get even, you know, let's say the premiums went up threefold in the first year, they went up again, maybe half again, you think, well, it's no more risky and the premiums are much higher. But for whatever the signaling reason they wanted to, they wanted to establish, they found something else not to do. <laughs> I want to turn a little bit to the public market investments in the book with a particular lens to start, which is 
publicly reported today, Ted and Todd each managed something like $12 billion of Berkshire's assets. That's kind of what I thought, yeah. Which is roughly in the vicinity of the capital that you manage. How do you think about what they're doing and whether that's attractive? Yeah, well, you know, Warren has said that these are both people who are blessed with the gift of knowing what's important and knowable. And so they don't operate outside that sphere. And that's a huge compliment, given that he, Warren's always stressed that that's the most critical skill to have. So that's one thing they're both endowed with. The other thing that Warren celebrates is even though their personal wealth is tied up exactly in the return on investments that they oversee, their time is not allocated entirely to that because they take on projects within the organization to which they add enormous value. Ted's closed countless transactions that Warren initiated, asked him to look at, and then walks away from it and knows that he never has to go back, but Ted will get the job done. Todd's, I gather from the outside, you spend more time with Todd than do I, I suspect, but has had a role to play in several of the very largest portfolio holdings, as well as one that may have migrated into the company overall, which is Precision Cash. Yeah, Precision Cash. I'm not sure, but that's my sense. Todd's too. But here you have these very talented investment minds that are manning their own portfolio, from which Warren can source his ideas as well, mind you, if he's sufficiently enamored by what they're describing. And then they give the benefit. Now, that's that's also beneficial to them as managers of their pool of capital because they become smarter through the process of lending their hands. So Todd's now on the board of J.P. Morgan, on the board of this healthcare venture. He's doing an enormous amount outside. Do you get concerned that Todd and Ted are just stretched in the sense that you manage a business, you're managing a large pool of yes. capital. If you're taking on closing private transactions – with a, what's known to be a really small team at headquarters. Yeah. Yeah. Warren may be this anomalous person. Yeah. Who, by the way, was closing deals he says on a sheet of paper a long time ago. Yeah. Deal making has gotten a little more sophisticated yeah. since then. Well, the notion of the ease with which Warren once closed, I remember hearing the story about an early insurance company that he bought and he showed up alone and the public companies that were looking to buy it showed up with each with five representatives and then a team, a dozen bankers with models before laptops. They had all these printed out situation analysis. And anytime there's a question, they had to thumb through thousands of pages and come up with their own model. Warren had it all in his head. And he knew exactly what the price was that he was willing to pay, no more, no less. And he bought it and all of the others sort of fell away. But they really didn't understand the essential value, which was what Warren got to so quickly. And it's very simple when you have that capacity. It's not as simple. The answer to your question is what they have, which is exactly what Kevin Clayton celebrated and what uh, Bob Shaw celebrated, what Mitex, not Mitex, but those two public companies is they don't have any reporting responsibilities outside of Warren in some ways. They don't meet with committees. They don't, they don't have to describe why it is that they like Amazon to people who may not have the capacity to even understand the essential value that they see in it. So the benefit of being inside Berkshire has also burdens because they're asked to do a lot of other things. Through those other things, they become smarter as investors. Warren has always said that he's a better public market investor because of his private market activities. And he's a better private market investor because of his public market activities. And each of them 
enjoy the same. And they will each become better at both sides of what they're asked to do. And yes, yes, they may work a little more hours than they might otherwise like because of the just the nature of the demand. By the way, they also have Munger Tolls. Of, that's sort of their brand X. And they have an extraordinary team of uh, people to pull from with with some of the best legal minds in the world. If you circle back some period of time, much like your own strategy, a lot of the Berkshire businesses were consumer-facing. You know, we talked about everything around homes and yes. home building yeah. and insurance yeah. and a lot of the early investments or Coca-Cola, American Express. Yeah. Over the last decade or so, this whole group of these regulated capital-intensive businesses, how have you thought about a shift to different type of business, different type of yeah. economics? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. When they bought from Scottish Power, Pacific Corp, I think it was called, they paid 10 times pretext to buy that business. And then they had an endless ability to deploy capital in the capital-starved company that they bought. Scottish Power hadn't invested in that production and distribution network sufficiently. And so they had they had the ability, because of regulated capital returns, to deploy capital at 10% plus as they built out the network. And that's an extraordinary investment opportunity where you have the ability to deploy more and more and more and more capital. Now, ultimately, you want to make sure that society doesn't change the terms on you midstream because you're you're deploying capital because of your belief that you can deliver your power that you produce through your wires to your clients at the price that you demand. That gives the return, the average return that you're allowed for on your capital. But society has come along and said, you know, really, that's a forced contract of adhesion. And you should give the user choice as to where they source their power. And then some of them might, like Wynn, for example, Wynn Casino might be in a particular part of the world where they're very close to massive wind and massive solar production capacity. And they may balk at having to pay the blended rate for the power that they get. When just down the road, there's a wind station that runs 24 hours a day in that particular market and could service their needs at a fraction 5% of what the blended rate might be, the variable cost of delivering that. And that's a battle right now. They may have found a solution to it, but that's been litigated. And so you would hate to have the model which supported the deployment of such capital over the past decade or two of ownership change in such a way that that capital becomes stranded and no longer. You also have the prospects of PG&E where there's a generalized belief that it'd be a nice thing if there's a forest fire to have the utility take on all of the liability of consequential damages after a fire, so long as their power station was responsible for arcing the original spark. It's a horrible open-ended liability and one that society ought not likely to allow to exist because it's, it's game over for the utility that happens to have the ill fortune of a spark in a windy day. And so the answer is, it's a beautiful investment to pay only 10 times a business and then to deploy capital at 10% return going forward in a 4% rate environment. For a long period of time, Warren has talked about just the law of large numbers. Yeah. And there shouldn't be an expectation that they can compound book value or intrinsic value at the same 
level they did in the past. And this seems like it's a case in point. You're talking about this beautiful 10% return business. And years ago, he would have sneezed on that because it was only 10% return. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But 10 times pre-tax is a number that he's often said is where he finds value in purchasing businesses. And that the inverse of that is 10%. And don't forget that a 10% investment in Pacific Corp funded by float is a very different return than the same thing funded by high-yield bonds at 12% through Drexel. So he's had the benefit of capital sourced throughout the organization to support what looks like a modest compared to his historical performance. But, you know, if you think back in 1999, Warren had b create a tie, which had the closing price of Berkshire at 5200 And if you compound from that moment till today, I think the compound is about 8%. Embedded, you can check that number. What year, and what year was that? 99 to today. And then if you go back to 60. Five, I think that it's when he first starts to report. From 65 to today, it might still be 19%. The power of those early years relative to the difficulties of the subsequent years. Now, mind you, the subsequent years, we probably had 10 years of half a percent borrowing costs. So to get 9% or 8% over that period of time against a benchmark that was sort of half a percent for 10 years is still adding an enormous amount of value. It's just different. How do you think about valuation? I think the valuation is you'd separate it out into the operating companies and into the portfolio and and give a little extra for the investment opportunities that come their way uniquely and for the capital structure benefits that they have through the insurance company and through the use of float to leverage the returns that you would get as just a, a traditional investor in the same opportunities that they see. It has not been as volatile as it historically had been. And so you don't have the same opportunities to buy Berkshire on a discount as you once did. Now, I think over its life, they've had a 50% drawdown four years over the period of time. We just haven't seen that. Do you have a back of the envelope or on a napkin valuation metric? I sort of do the standard approach where you value the operating companies at 11 times operating income and then then, um, give float an enormous value. Now, Warren has said repeatedly that he would not sell the insurance business for book value plus float without the burden of paying tax on either. So, Float for Warren is a permanent funding source that he believes is the equivalent of equity. So just by valuing the insurance company at book value, for example, would massively understate it because of the float, which he has said he wouldn't give the business up for its book plus float at full value with no taxes. And so in your process, do you have a little spreadsheet or a model or a napkin where you're just writing down and updating what you think the value of the stock is? Yeah. And you have a metric that says, if it gets this cheap, I'm going to buy more. Or if it gets expensive, I know you're not yeah. a big on selling much of anything. But Well, I think it's a question about the percentage weight. At the same time, Berkshire has been and remains around a 10 to 12% investment for my clients, which is the largest holding other than 
MasterCard, which nips at its heels as it did this year, past year when it was up 40%. Mid-year, it was the largest holding for some time. But like MasterCard, as Berkshire as well, when the position approaches and then exceeds 13%, maybe it's unlucky 13, whatever the reason is, that feels to me like it's a level above which we can let other people make that money. And so I, I've historically tended to rebalance when positions get above 13%. So you're using almost the relative stock price movement of the stocks in your portfolio to determine. Yes, you think about what it means. It's a greater percentage weight of capital at a lesser undervaluation. And so it's a combination of both those working. And, And the absolute opposite is taking place in other portfolio holdings at the same time, which is that they are increasingly undervalued and underweight. And so that's a metric that helps keep it from becoming such a large position. And then the world is constantly reminds us, whether it's GE or any number of companies, Philip Morris is an example. What happens when people lock in on on formerly productive investments and and let them run to such a large percentage of the portfolio that they're just ill-equipped to handle the reversals? And in Berkshire's case, I could easily see a world I'd be comfortable owning Berkshire and two other companies and, and just be hyper-concentrated. But I don't think you need to do that for investment advisory clients. In your sweet spot of these family-owned businesses, succession comes up and is a regular issue. How do you look at Berkshire succession in its success compared to the many other businesses that you've owned? It's all about compensation. It's all about how... Warren himself over the past 30 years has been the HR office of Berkshire Hathaway on the most critical decision that he can make, which is how does he incent the people who sit in the seats to do what's best for Berkshire and at the same time best for the businesses. And he says that he has 75 different CEO contracts that are typically one or two pages long. Now, the public company's compensation package will be 400 pages with 75 tabs and all of the rest produced by Hay Associates for Fortune and at the same time allow for the kind of corporate mischief that means that public companies struggle to deliver their full potential by underinvesting typically by virtue of the desire to hit targets for personal compensation that exists independently of the business's benefit. And that's a big deal. And that's what Warren's gotten right now. What's amazing is that almost the first responsibility that was handed over to the co-vice chairman was compensation. And so off the bat, at the start, both Greg and Ashit, I understand, were responsible for the compensation structure. They probably had good wisdom not to change the prior years by terms, maybe they updated by price. But the fact is the model of how you incent, for example, in Geico, it may be by policyholder growth and combined ratio. And so you can't trade one off against the other. They both have to behave in a way that's good for the company long term. And are you able to get much insight into the different compensation structures no. from the people you've no. talked to? No. Other than what Warren will share with us. And and he has described the Geico one. And it's so does a prototype for me, which is, you know, yes, you can you can grow policies and give away the combined ratio, but you'll pay the price over time. Or or you don't have a price low enough 
And so the combined ratio suffers. What do you think happens to the stock the day he's no longer at the company? I think there's already still a departure discount. So I think the market's already carries with it the secret that Warren is 88 years old. And so I think that the company is very critically at the moment engaged in Sherry purchase with the strong view that though it's always been an option, the fact that it had been underutilized over time meant that his successor in decision-making on allocation would always have struggled to hold forth to the remaining Berkshire shareholders the virtue of share buybacks, when in fact it wasn't a component of wealth development over history. And so the announcement last year that they would unhinge the buyback to any kind of statement on book value premium meant that Berkshire could get at it. And they bought back a lot of stock. And I think we'll see in the fourth quarter that they continue to. And I think you sort of see billions of dollars. My hope is that magnitude of two to four billion dollars will have been bought back so that it's undeniably the case that it's a tool going forward. And that gets to the question you asked, which is hopefully Berkshire will buy a lot of stock. That would be the right move. And then for me, longer term, since the world is increasingly holding Berkshire shares philanthropically, that over time, I would love to see a big dividend so that those institutions with a payout ratio requirement can fund it through Berkshire's own dividend. And it represents the fact that, you know, it will always be a huge burden to deploy the capital that naturally flows into Berkshire and the use of a dividend to meet the needs of those philanthropic entities and at the same time help manage the burden of deploying capital would not be at all unfriendly to my investors' interests. I would like to see that. Yeah, why do you think Warren hasn't set that as a precedent? Well, you know, by virtue of how he marks himself, which is the outperformance relative to the S&P, 500 of book value. Buybacks wreck havoc with book value. The nominal growth, but not the rate of growth. That's right. The rate of growth would do better if the capital base is low. Oh, that's right. The rate of growth, but it is the actual growth that Warren scorecards himself. If you look at page two of the annual report, it's here was book value, $500. It's now 27,000. And here's the S&P 500. It's gone from 40 to... And you think that's the core reason why... I don't think it's a core reason. I think it's a reality. As we observe with how he manages the contracts with his key employees, he measures himself in a way that has historically been consistent with what he wanted to do with capital anyhow, which is to redeploy it internally. And he wanted to hold back capitals for the big deals and also for making investments opportunistically. So I'd love to get your take on some of the common critiques that people yeah. will levy on Warren, a lot of which have to do with the possibility of internal contradictions. So the notion he's very well known for castigating Wall Street's helpers, and yet at different times he's owned positions in investment banks. Last year, I think, came up this question of sugar and Coca-Cola and how does he feel about it? And on on one hand, he has high moral ground. On the other hand, he said, well, I'm really happy because I drink Coke. How do you think about those those conflicts? It's hard, you know, especially as the world moves increasingly towards ESG standards. I'd say Warren has often described the issues in business, the mistakes in business as being a function not of good idea, of bad ideas at the start, but good ideas taken to extremes. And so 
he's benefited over the years by not ending up on in extreme positions. So, for example, if he could own tobacco, has not has chosen not to. He's just uncomfortable with that. With Coca Cola, it's a really big issue, and society is sort of answering it for him. Coke's share price has been $44 a share down from, I don't know what the peak was, maybe 65, 70 bucks in 1989 or whatever it was. It's actually taken a toll on the performance of the company that he owns. And if you just go into any outlet today and look at what's happened to the beverage category, it was once an enforced Coca-Cola phalanx. And today it is chaos in terms of choice. And Coke doesn't participate in that because to the consumer who's drinking kombucha or something, they're just not even thinking about sugared soft drinks. Yeah. So that lends to the question of cell discipline. And so you could make the case with, you know, should Warren be thinking about selling Coca-Cola, but I would turn it differently, which is to say, what would have to happen for you to decide it's time to sell your Berkshire stock? It would be the falling away from the strict adherence to the proposition that's made Berkshire so attractive over time, which is um, here's a place to come. It's really it's really the private companies that give Berkshire its special secret sauce, I think. And it's because of what they offer that that opportunity has remained so strong for Berkshire for so long. And if you get a sense that there's a wholesale rejiggering of the lines of reporting or that people have to fire 10% of all their staff or any kind of change that impinges upon that promise, it'll vastly diminish the value of Berkshire going forward because it's the future deals that we will inevitably get to have at Berkshire because of the structure that exists today because there's nowhere else for those sellers to go that makes Berkshire so valuable today. Now, it's interesting, Byron Trot has put together a vehicle that has some characteristics that allow people to unload parts of a business but still stay in control to a whole range of options that he understands from his longtime service to Warren how valuable those choices and those opportunities have been for Berkshire. And even though Byron Trot doesn't have a public vehicle, the pools of capital that he does oversee benefit as has Berkshire over time for getting early looks at great businesses. So if we play that out a little bit, however unlikely, given what Warren's talked to the board about preserving the culture, but let's say someday in the future, exactly what you painted occurs. It's not going to happen quickly, right? You already own these businesses that fit. It's the incremental acquisition. You say, huh, you scratch your head and maybe there's another one. And how do you sess out in a situation like that that now is the time to move on? Well, it'll be through the same sources of information that I've always relied on within Berkshire. And it will be at those meetings, you'll just start to see people's eyes shift. They'll say, well, that's not how it works here now. Haven't you heard about the new plan internally? And and it'll have to be scuttlebutt. And it'll also be the public pronunciations. The annual is rich in description of values and objectives even while being less rich in facts about the individual businesses, uh, because there's so many of them now. But they still reassert their core values or core principles, and they're still vital and they're still believable. 
as they seem to slip from the reality that's internal at Berkshire over time, I will become increasingly concerned about whether or not they're actually guiding as they once did. That'll be the trade-off. So I want to turn to something that you touched on earlier, and I let alone, which is Berkshire's shift slowly IBM into Apple into yeah. technology investments. Yeah. I understand from reading your quarterly letters that not too long ago, you added a new position, which That's is a something. monumental <laughs> event. And so first, tell me, when was the last time you added a new name yeah. to your clients' portfolios? Three names. And that was probably 2009. We had three takeovers back in the late 2009 era. We had U.S. Tobacco and we had Cadbury Schweppes. There's one other source of liquidity. And so I had an opportunity to make investments. At the time, an investment in MasterCard, which I had passed on before it went up 15-fold, became available as the shares dropped almost 60%. And so 2010 MasterCard and 2010 Unilever. And then more recently was a small position in J.C. Deco, which is a leader in global billboards and outdoor advertising with a particular flair for the developing emerging market. So that was consistent with the fact that all of our portfolio companies relied heavily on the billboard advertising space for luxury goods and for beverages and all the rest, that we became familiar with that business. And 70% family-controlled company built for the long term with losses up front that underwrite long-term gains for 15-year contracts. It's an attractive combination. That's the third one. So those are three over almost nine years. Yeah, so this doesn't happen every day. No, no. Turnover is about 6%. And MasterCard, you said you'd missed a big run and it yeah. sells way off. Uh, Deco's a small company. So what's this new name that you bought? Yes, well, it's Google. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 